This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on malaria. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. Malaria is a parasitic infection caused by protozoa of the genus Plasmodium. Plasmodium falciparum is the most life-threatening form. It's transmitted by mosquitoes and mainly affects people in tropical and subtropical regions, and travellers account for the majority of disease outside of these regions. So we all need to be on our guard. To tell us about the disease, we have on the line Professor Ron Berens. Ron is Professor Emeritus in Travel Medicine at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Ron is also the author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this subject. So Ron, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you, what exactly is malaria? Malaria is a a widespread infection, or was widespread infection, of many species, including reptiles, birds, mammals and humans and they all have their unique species of malaria so in humans we have five different organisms which lead to a clinical disease the disease itself is very non-specific and this is one of its major difficulties is that it's it's clinically difficult to diagnose it presents within seven to 14 days with falciparum malaria, which is the species which causes the more severe infection. And subsequently, uh, after this incubation period, develops symptoms which include fever, uh, malaise, fatigue, muscle pain, headache, very nonspecific symptoms. The disease itself is progressive and this is because the the parasite replicates in red blood cells. And this is a fixed cycle, which every 48 hours in one species uh, and other species it can be longer, the cycle replicates and more parasites are released into the circulating system. And the more parasites, the more biomass, the more parasites present lead to more severe damage to predominantly red cells and as a subsequent to the red cells you get uh, damage to um, organs in the body. Okay thanks Ron that's really helpful and let's move on to diagnosis. I wonder can you tell us about recent advances in diagnosis? So the original diagnosis has been microscopic looking down a microscope at a, a, a blood film made either of a thick or thin blood film, uh, staining it and then identifying the parasites. That's very labor intensive. And uh, in, the, in the past few decades, uh, more advanced techniques have developed, which includes what's known as the rapid diagnostic test, which is an immunochromatographic assay, which is now the most widely used technique for diagnosing malaria. But in the recent five or 10 years, we've had PCR, chain reaction, used as the most sensitive method for diagnosing malaria. And this can identify 
parasites which are not seen on, on microscopy, and therefore it's a very sensitive technique. The most recent technology which has been developed for use in developing countries where there's limited laboratory capacity is a lamp assay. And, and lamp assay really is a form of PCR, but requiring much less technology and uh, equipment, uh, but roughly the same sensitivity. And that really now would be the ideal in suboptimal laboratories in developing countries. But these all require some competence and expertise to make the diagnosis. Okay, and can you explain what LAMP stands for? LAMP stands for uh, loop-mediated isothermal amplification. So it's basically application of DNA using low-cost heating. It's isothermal, so you don't need expensive or sophisticated equipment which changes temperature uh, as as you cycle. You need a constant temperature of 60 or 65 degrees. So basically, it's PCR with less sophisticated equipment, but has roughly the same sensitivity. Okay, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. And have these new tests, i.e. the rapid diagnostic tests and the PCR, largely replaced uh, the thick and thin blood films? Can you make a firm diagnosis based on these new tests? So the rapid diagnostic tests are really uh, very good for bedside diagnosis. Their sensitivity is not as good in uh, expert hands as the microscopy. However, for environments where there is maybe not electricity or or, or, or no uh, laboratory, they are the ideal way of diagnosing malaria. There are some problems with them in the sense that there are, as I've already mentioned, five different species, but um, the main species, falciparum, is the one that we need to diagnose because of its uh, severity. I mean, there is also Plasmodium vivax, and there are rapid diagnostic tests for Plasmodium vivax. They seem to be less sensitive and less specific, but still you have rapid diagnostic tests where there's combination of um, antibodies for for both those species, uh, but the Vivax make is is not as, as sensitive uh, as the uh, P. falciparum. The other problems with these rapid diagnostic is their stability. They can go off over time if they're not stored properly. You need to be trained on to to use it, but you don't need a laboratory person. If you train health personnel or or nurses, they can use them very effectively. They have had a big impact on the diagnosis and therefore treatment of malaria because up to their introduction, all fevers were tended to be treated as malaria in developing countries. With the rapid diagnostic tests, it's reduced the numbers of treatment given in many areas, but not all, because you now could exclude malaria by having a negative diagnostic test. Not all negatives are negative malaria because at low parasite levels, the test can be negative, Uh, but it does become positive with time. So repeated tests will reveal malaria if, if the original test is negative. 
Okay, great. Thank you. Staying on the theme of diagnosis, what are the other common pitfalls in diagnosis that we haven't mentioned up to now? The starting point is a clinical diagnosis, and because malaria is so generic in its presenting symptoms, um, it's quite difficult to diagnose it just clinically. But in, in areas where laboratory facilities are not available, treatment is given automatically where one has a fever in, in, a, in a susceptible individual. The other difficulties in diagnosing is, of course, one needs to have, um, this is a differential diagnosis in um, asking for the test. And this in, 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 in the developed world, in, in the United States and UK and Europe and Australasia, it can be a big problem because you've got to consider malaria as a differential before you actually test for it. It can't be diagnosed without using a specific malaria test. And so this is a big issue in uh, in travelers where the primary physician does not consider malaria as a diagnosis and therefore doesn't test for it and therefore diagnosis missed. So misdiagnosis is an important um, risk factor for, for severe disease and death in developed countries. Okay, thank you. That's that's really helpful. And on the theme of differential diagnosis, Ebola is something that's been in the news a lot recently. How can you tell malaria from Ebola? It's straightforward. If you have a negative malaria test on at least two and possibly even three testings, it's not malaria. Then the differential for the cause of a fever is very wide. And obviously, during a region where there's Ebola being transmitted or there's an outbreak, that comes higher up the list. And you therefore have to do a specific Ebola PCR to identify or exclude the infection. But three negative tests for malaria excludes malaria, and therefore you've got to look for alternative causes of fever. And then it becomes a clinical and uh, history-taking exercise to try and identify the most likely or and clinical most likely diagnosis. So really, excluding malaria is the first step to diagnosing other infectious uh, causes of fever. Okay, thank you. That's that's really helpful. And and last question about travellers returning home and then their doctor needing to think about the diagnosis for falciparum malaria, how long after their return home can they still get symptoms and signs of disease? So this is where it becomes slightly more complicated and and, uh, where the primary clinician needs to understand a bit about the geography of malaria. So falciparum malaria is the predominant infection in sub-Saharan Africa. And if somebody has been to an African country and returns, Typically, the symptoms develop within the first two to four weeks after return if it is falciparum. And it can occur at longer time, and the latency can be is very uncommon, but the most important diagnostic criteria for falciparum malaria is travel abroad to an endemic country. Vivax is more complex because Vivax has a quite a latent cycle 
which can come to some months to up to a year after exposure. And that means that the history of travel is often uh, not collected because if you've been away a year ago, uh, both yourself and the clinician will not be forthright with that history. So Vivex, which is predominantly in South America and Southeast Asia now, the presentation can be up to a year, but again, it's within the first few months uh, typically. So Sub-Saharan Africa within the first three to four weeks, uh, Asia and South America uh, up to a year after exposure, symptoms can develop. Okay, thank you. That's that's great. Let's move on to management. Um, can you tell us about recent advances in the management of this disease? So the the management has been dramatically improved by the development of the artemisinin-based drug. These are drugs which were originally identified by the Chinese from the artemisia plant, but in the last thirty or forty years have been become the the foremost. Uh, treatment uh, modality for malaria. We have a number of these drugs now available for treatment. And for falciparum malaria, these are the most effective drugs that we have. They are quick acting, they're non-toxic, and they are very good at clearing the parasitemia. The difficulty we now have, of course, is that we have resistance to these drugs and they are now only used in combination with other drugs to reduce uh, or deal with resistance. And therefore, we have always, we have what are known as artemisinin combination therapies or ACTs. And that's now the standard therapy which is now used. These are widely used in, the, in, in Africa and, and other countries with malaria. Uh, we now use them in the United Kingdom. They're not always widely available in developed countries because malaria is such an uncommon problem, but they are effective. Drugs such as chloroquine are no longer effective for falciparum, but there are newer drugs, and these are predominantly developed because of continuing development of resistance by the parasites to our current therapy. So the important message is that single drug therapy should not be used. It should be combination therapy for the to overcome resistance and um, usually complete cure for falciparum malaria is achieved by the standard therapy. Vivax, however, is slightly more complicated because Vivax, as we've already mentioned, has a, a latent uh, cycle and that latent cycle needs different therapy to the blood cycle. The, the And this cycle for blood, it can be easily treated with the drug chloroquine but for the latent cycle, we need a different group of drugs, the quinolones, such as primaquine or tofenaquine. And therefore, you need two drugs to properly cure Plasmodium vivax. Okay, great. That's, that's really clear. And the BMJ best practice topic also mentions a vaccine, I think, in, uh, in the emerging treatments or, or preventive strategies are part of the topic. Um, but tell us about vaccines. How far away are we from a malaria vaccine? So we actually have a vaccine currently available, the RTSS vaccine, which has been developed over a decade or so. And 
It is now being implemented in a number of countries in Africa. It is against falciparum malaria. It is used in, in young children and infants, and these in most parts of the world, malaria is endemic, are the, the highest risk group and have the greatest illness. The one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that there is a partial immunity to malaria, and once you have survived repeated infections, you develop a partial immunity. Therefore, adults suffer less of the burden of disease in high endemic countries than the children who, as they acquire this immunity, suffer the consequences and uh, occasionally die. This vaccine is trying to emulate this natural immunity. It does so only partially, but it does so in a way that it's, it's worth using because the reduction in mortality and morbidity is enough to make it worthwhile. There is still a lot of work being done on falciparum malaria vaccines, trying to target the different stages of the infection because there are multiple stages of infection. And the scientists are looking at vaccines which uh, target both the blood stage, the liver stage, and the, um, the sexual stage, which is what passes the infection onto the mosquito, and trying to get a multi-stage vaccine. That is still probably some years off, but currently the blood stage vaccine is being used in high endemic countries with some success, but it's certainly not an ideal vaccine at the moment. Staying on the theme of management, uh, tell us about other common pitfalls in management that we haven't mentioned already. The biggest problem with management is the original diagnosis. Uh, And I I, I say this again and again because most of the deaths that occur in developed countries in the United Kingdom, United States and in Europe are because no one considers malaria. And once malaria has developed, once you have had multiple uh, cycles of the, you have overwhelming disease and even the standard effective treatment cannot cure the infection and you die from the complications. So early diagnosis, think of the diagnosis is really critical. Once you have a significant or severe malaria, as we call it, the complications of the infection are the management of renal failure, of adult respiratory distress syndrome, of um, some of the neurological, the uh, coma that's induced by malaria are the main forms that are required to manage it. So clearing the infection is standard with drugs, but managing the complications, as I've already mentioned, are the, the real challenge, including the metabolic changes that occur. And this requires sophisticated intensive care facilities, which usually are not available in in developing countries, but in travelers' malaria, they are are what really are the difference between fatal and and surviving the infection, having effective management of these complications. So uh, it's important to get uh, people into an intensive care in the early stages if there are any signs of severe malaria, and uh, then implementing these uh, supportive measures. Once the disease is cleared, once the parasite's cleared and the complications are overcome, there should be almost no continuing problems. Uh, occasionally there are some neurological ones, but in general, 
once you've cleared the infection and the organs recover completely, which they normally would do, there is no residual evidence of infection. So it's a disease which, once you survive, you should be back to normal in most people. Okay, thank you. What other common questions do you get asked about the disease? What have we missed in this conversation so far? Well, a very common issue is about the relapse of the disease. Um, And this comes about because many individuals don't understand the different species of uh, malaria. So once you've cured effectively falciparum malaria, it will not relapse. It's completely eliminated from the body. That's not necessarily the case with Vivax. Once you've only had one of the treatments, such as, for example, chloroquine, you can still have a relapse. And you can have a relapse if you have resistance. When we we talk about clearance, it's not been adequately cleared. You've suppressed the infection, and it's still continues to circulate and recurs. So it can recur if it's not properly treated with an appropriate therapy, or it can relapse if you've inadequately treated Vivax and left behind the liver stage, which then relapses months uh, to a year later. So that's sometimes quite confusing. People worry sometimes about treatments, we have quite a large number of therapeutic agents we can now use. Some of them are not widely available. For example, when you have severe malaria, you need intravenous artesanate. Now, intravenous artesanate in many countries is not licensed and is also quite an unstable drug and therefore has to be kept in special, in certain institutions for dispatching across the country. And so not immediately available, of course, as this is such a serious illness, the earlier the treatment, the more uh, successful the outcome. And therefore, intravenous artesanate is not in most pharmacies, and it has to be sought from the specialist centers that hold it. And um, people need to order this drug early on so that if there's any delay in accessing it, it can be done as quickly as possible. The other pitfalls are that people who develop the disease don't always look as ill as they may be. And this is because there's a very rapid decline in in both mental and renal and lung function that occurs around the cycle of the parasite. So when it replicates and you get a 16-fold increase in the number of parasites, you can very quickly deteriorate. So you can be lulled into thinking the patient's not significantly ill And after the next cycle, within a couple of hours, the patient can be unconscious. So you could very easily underestimate the severity of the infection. In part, this might be assessed by the the parastemia. And the parastemia is a proportion of infected cells when looked at under the microscope. So we usually use a percentage. Anything under 5% is probably not serious or severe. But after one cycle, a 5% parasitemia can, can become a 20% parasitemia. And in 20% parasitemia, that's one in five cells are infected. And that's a very high percentage. And that's a predictor of a serious uh, problem. So the message is that even people look well and, and don't feel too unwell, that doesn't easily forecast their, their likely outcome because of this the cyclical nature of this um, 
replication, each cycle brings about a whole new fresh number of parasites which then go on to cause their, their damage in the, in the small blood vessels of the body. Okay, thank you very much, Ron, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast and sign in to BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other infectious diseases. Thank you once again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.